And good evening, everybody. Welcome back to... Where are we? Mythgard Academy. I don't even know where I am. Mythgard Academy, session number 19 of Inferno. Uh, my apologies for being late beyond even my customary lack of punctuality. I do have a bit of an excuse, and I... Um, I'm afraid that my excuse comes with a warning that it might happen again. Um, I have, uh, I'm doing some, uh, well, I'm having done, uh, which is worse. Uh, actually, no, it's not. Uh, some renovation of my basement here, the basement in which my office is operating here. Um, so I've had uh, 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 people here working on stuff and they didn't finish up until uh almost exactly 10 and i'm like um yeah it's time to get things ready for class so anyway sorry um but here we are uh so i apologize for being late i hope it won't happen too many times but uh things are in a little bit of chaos uh off screen of course on screen fortunately all you can see is me and Virgil and Dante hanging out here looking down uh, into whichever number pouch this is. I'm totally losing track of the number of pouches. There are a lot of them here in the Malibolgia. Um But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Um, yeah, Sarah says, if your contractor shows up, you let them work as long as possible because you never know when they'll come back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, well, David, this one works late uh, because uh, fortunately, uh, and Sarah, I know where to find this one uh, because this contractor is my brother. Uh, so he was the one who is here uh, later. Um, but anyway, so it's all good. It's all good. It's all friendly. It's a huge improvement. Uh, I can't even tell you about how exciting it's going to be. Um, my little cave-like basement that I've been broadcasting out of for the last eight years is uh, my workspace is greatly expanded. It's pretty awesome, but it's pretty disruptive too, and probably will be off and on uh, for a little while here. But anyway, um, uh, this is, uh, this is all good. Yeah. Jennifer hopes that, uh, we'll, we'll still, still be speaking to each other, uh, when the renovations are finished. Yeah, no, that's the plan. Uh, that's the plan. I think it should be fine. It should be fine. Uh, my brother is, is, is excellent, uh, in lots of ways. So it's all good. All right. But meanwhile, uh, let us get back to hell. We were having uncomfortable conversations involving snakes, as I recall. Uh, and, uh, I think we should return to the very uncomfortable snake talk that we started last time involving various improbable serpine serpentine penetration of bodies. So, um, as I recall, we were disagreeing about this, or at least sort of wondering about this. Um, so what's the sin? That's being punished by transformation, by, through, and on account of snakes here. Um, we were having some debates uh, because this is the clearest evidence that passages. Well, I hope to deliver on that promise today. Um, yeah, so that, you know, several were voting for false witness, which don't get me wrong, uh, makes sense in the snake context. Um, assuming uh, that the snake context that you're thinking of is a vaguely Genesis 3 oriented snake context, um, uh, associating 
snakes with the devil and therefore with lies and deceptions of various kinds. Um, yes, but that seemed, I don't know. I, the evidence, it seems to me, is that the people who are down here in the snake zone are thieves, actually. He robbed the sacristy of its fair ornaments, and someone else was falsely blamed for that. Now, is he deflecting? Did he falsely blame somebody else and got somebody else? And that would be the fraud, right, that he perpetrated against someone else? Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Now, I mean, I agree, Gerald. I am not saying that he is not guilty at all for this. You know, Gerald is pointing out that, of course, not confessing the truth of this would have been a sin of omission, not a sin of commission, right? There are those two different ways in which you can sin, right? By actively doing something wrong or by failing to do the thing that you should have done, right? And so in this case, he should have confessed, he shouldn't have done the thing in the first, it was a sin of commission to steal in the first place. And then it was a sin of omission not to like admit the truth when you see somebody else is being blamed for the crime that you committed. I agree with that. I mean, that's perfectly true. Um, but, um, uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, you're right, Michael. He could have stopped at mentioning the theft. Um, so I agree that his going on to mention the false blame of somebody else seems like it should be relevant. Like he wouldn't, he wouldn't have said it if it didn't matter at all for that. Um, I don't know if it's like for him kind of, um, kind of a double whammy, you know? Um, but, but here's my problem. We're still in the same pouch in the next canto. So this is the end of canto 34 and we're going to go on 24, sorry, 24, uh, the end of canto 24 and we're going to go on to canto 25 and in Canto 25, we're still in the same pouch, right? More snakes, more uncomfortably. Uh, <laughs> Canto 25, with still more snakes, right? Um, and um, we're still in the same pouch with people being punished for the same sins. And they seem to be mostly thieves that are being punished. Um, so is there something about this guy's punishment, the way that the snakes are, you know wrapping around and possibly stabbing through or maybe not maybe wrapping under uh, I don't know um, uh, that this is that that there's a special element of punishment for him because he's compounded um, uh, he's compounded his theft with a further the further fraud of allowing or even encouraging someone else to be falsely blamed uh, for his uh, for his crime we can't, um, I, I, yeah, I mean, we can't, uh, get around that possibility, I suppose. And we've seen, of course, in other places, distinctions among different classes of sinners within the same pouch, right? Like the, um, uh, the pimps and the seducers, uh, is the first place we saw that. Um, of course, like Caiaphas and the dudes in the cowls, 
um, uh, just in the previous pouch, right? So we've seen distinctions like that. This doesn't feel like that kind of thing, though. Not like the not like Caiaphas in any case. Um, there it was. There was a clear difference in degree. Now it's true that the pimps and the seducers were kind of experiencing the same thing. Just they were just running in different directions, right? So there was there was a dis- there was a, a separation but not exactly a distinction in, in gradient, exactly, right? Whereas with Caiaphas, he was definitely receiving punishment additional that was more than what was being received by the others. Um, and I am not at all sure that this guy is receiving a worse punishment from other people. Um, it doesn't seem to... If there is a distinction, it doesn't seem to me a distinction of that kind. Um, you know, like... Garden variety thieves who just steal stuff go over here, but like thieves who steal stuff and then let other people take the fall for them, they go over here. Like this is, you know, and they get different, a wholly different um, and uniquely uncomfortable snake torture. Um, uh, Yeah. Um, It doesn't seem like that. It doesn't feel like this, the, the way that these are, if anything, the people we're going to go on to see in Canto 25 seem to be worse. I mean, like, what's happening to them seems to be worse than what we see happening here. Um, and um, and what did we see happening here? This was the guy... Wasn't this the guy? This is the guy who's kind of like a phoenix... And kind of like maybe somebody who had a seizure or something like that, right? The guy who gets who took the snake in the back of the head, you know, the back of the neck, somewhere vaguely in the spinal column slash brainstem, right? And collapsed into like burst into flame, collapsed into ashes, and then like recoagulated as a person, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um. Maybe that's worse than what's happening in the next canto. We'll have to see what we think about that. Anyway, so let's... let's I, I am remembering that correctly. That's what happened with this dude, right? This dude is the, the Mr. Robber of the Sacristy and, and uh, uh, someone else being falsely blamed was the Phoenix-like dude, right? Uh, snake-induced Phoenix transformation. Um and William, I agree. There is that element also. William is pointing out, of course, this is a dude who stole from a church specifically. Um, so there's another level also, right? I mean, there are potentially three different elements of his sin here, right? The sacrilege element, stealing from the church, um, the theft angle, and the false witness slash... Um, just letting somebody else take the fall for him thing, right? Um, I agree. So this guy's complicated, especially since we don't get more explicit commentary uh, within the text, I mean, um, uh, on what exactly the sin is. Um, I find this pouch really interesting and really difficult in this way. I mean, David, you were asking... um, uh, oh no! Wait, that's your snakes on a plane reference. No, uh, right. Uh, the you're asking questions about like if these are thieves, what's the deal with the, sh- the shape shifting? Um, what's the allegorical significance of these snakes specifically? 
exactly. That's my question too. Um, I this is I, I'm. It's not going to surprise you here by now that I don't know uh, or understand. So I'm hoping we can figure it out. Let's let's keep going and see what we can figure out. Okay. Uh, so next canto. Um, if reader, you are slow now to believe what I shall tell. That is no cause for wonder, for I who saw it hardly can accept it. As I kept my eyes fixed upon those sinners. So there's three dudes, right? He's looking at these three sinners sitting there, like minding their own business. A serpent with six feet springs out against one of the three and clutches him completely. It gripped his belly with its middle feet and with its four feet grappled his two arms. And then it sank its teeth in both his cheeks it stretched its rear feet out along his thighs and ran its tail along between the two. Then it straightened it again behind his loins. Following this, right? Okay, so we've got six feet, each attaching themselves, two to his arms, two to his midriff, two to his thighs, and then it's got a tail, this, this six-legged serpent, run with the six-legged serpent, wraps its tail around his crotch, presumably, and, and the tail comes up, the, 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 uh, up his back, right around the other side, and then it bites him in the face, right? So it's, it's, it fixes its mouth on his face, biting both of his cheeks. Okay. No ivy ever gripped a tree so fast as when that horrifying monster clasped and intertwined the other's limbs with its... Okay. Now, ever gripped a tree so fast? Um, there are all kinds of fastness, of course, as uh, uh, as the White Knight from the Looking Glass will tell you. Um, uh, and of course, this fastness means gripping it hard, right? Make fa so fast that you cannot not quickly, but the other kind of fast. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, that is a lot of feet. Uh, for a snake, William, I agree. It's more or less um, six more feet than I expected the serpent to have. Uh, but um, so if we're imagining something sort of dragon-like, uh, that seems fitting. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we're supposed to be flexible with this. Um, are we sure that serpent equals snake? Well, yeah, sure. But that doesn't mean it can also be a dragon. Like serpent equals snake equals dragon. Pretty much. Kind of. Right? Uh, I mean, the two words, serpent and dragon, are often kind of used interchangeably. Um, so, um... The fact that he's using, that Dante's using the word serpent, uh, and again, I don't know Italian well enough to know the connotations of the Italian word that he's using there, um, but um, uh, but Bruce exactly the connections between uh, drag both dragon and snake with Satan are that very frequent. That's that's very normal. Um, and yeah, Stephen is thinking, of course, of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, which apparently does not yet crawl upon its belly, right? The uh, the legless serpent thing uh, 
seems to be a consequence, right? Let's, when the serpent is cursed in Genesis 3, when the fallout happens uh, from the whole apple incident, uh, that the snake shall uh, crawl on its belly and eat the dust of the earth is the consequence for the serpent of its participation uh, in that whole fiasco. Um, so again, presumably, the serpent, when Eve meets it, is not crawling on its belly. Um, and um, so therefore, might it have had feet? Um, you know, is the dragon uh, that Satan is associated with in the book of Revelation, for instance, so a sort of footed serpent? Is it like, you know, just another version of the serpent that talked to Eve in the first place? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Bruce says, so these are unfallen snakes. Uh, well, they're the instruments of divine justice, right? You know, I mean, these, these, these particular, these particular snakes. Um, so, uh, I guess, uh, remember, these are not necessary, like it's, and the serpent, I don't know what to do with the serpents. Like, I, David, I'm not even getting so far as asking what to do with them allegorically. I'm still focused on the literal level. Like, what are these supposed to be depicting? Not just representing, not not connected to, but what, what are they just depicting, right? Um, they're probably not demons. Although, I mean, again, the association between serpents and, and, and Satan is so strong, that association is so strong, that um, it's natural to think that these might be demonic serpents, right? Um, but I don't know that we have reason to think that they are. I, I, I think that they could well be... Um, uh, I think that they could well be... Um, well, not angelic figures exactly, but they're... they're you know, divine creatures, you know, the, they are the mechanism by which, you know, they, they are the creatures of the almighty, which he is using to inflict his justice upon, um, upon the sinners in this, uh, uh, in this place. Um, they seem to me perhaps less like the demons, you know, the Malabranch back in the, you know, uh, back with the, with the, um, the bribery dudes within tar pits and um, more like the flames that fall from the sky, you know, and land in the seventh circle. Um, you know, that's, that's, or that seems to be, again, just like the, the uh, mechanism. Um, yeah. It's <laughs> William says, I am a snake, or rather, a snake as it should have been. Yeah, something like that, right? So not like an unfallen snake exactly, but, you know, using the old model. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, something like that. Something like that. Um, and David, I agree them being allegorical, it is certainly the the fact that it has six legs instead of four or zero or two or twelve um, is almost certainly 
there for us to read it allegorically, right? Um, we see it, one of the obvious functions is to focus on the connection. Like they are the mechanism by which the serpent attaches itself to this person, right? So if we are to understand the kind of at least metaphorical, if not, um, at least metaphorical, if not um, actually, um, you know, allegorical and symbolic significance of the snake. Um, the very first level that we should think about this, right, is in terms of its connection with the victim's body, right? So the 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 snake is correspond the the serpent is corresponding to his arms, his legs, and his belly, and his face, right? So we've got the snake and the person face to face, with his snake's face eating the face of the other guy, right? Eating the face of the sinner. So the sinner's mouth is engulfed by the mouth of the snake. His arms are... He latches onto his arms, he latches onto his legs, and he latches onto his belly. That seems to me, rather than thinking of it in terms of, uh, like, purely, at least not at first, in terms of purely abstract allegory, you know, something like, um, the six legs of the serpent represent, you know, the six... (laughs) I don't know what... (laughs) I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, right? Uh, like six, you know, the six corresponding virtues to the, you know, whatever. It, it, instead of going somewhere like that first, I want to think about the attention it's drawing to his body. Because, of course, we're very interested in bodies in this canto, right? Whether we like it or are enjoying it or not, we're interested because um, it's very clear that Dante is very interested in bodies. He spends the vast majority of Canto 25 with very intricate and detailed descriptions of people's bodies and what's happening to them, right? So we're supposed to be thinking about the bodies. And, uh, um, so, um, Arthur's asking... <laughs> Arthur, I love when you specify uh, that this is a serious question and you're not just making a joke. I, I get it. I get it. I mean, I get why you did that, and I appreciate that. Um, uh, uh, wondering about phallic symbolism here. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, the arms, legs, belly. Um arms to sort of talk about like the actions that you perform, right? Um, the things that you do, the places that you go, right? With your legs, uh, and the, your belly, right? The belly that is, uh, um, is, that's the first one described, right? It gripped his belly with its middle feet. Yeah, that comes first. Um, it, it starts with the belly, right? And then it gets the arms and then it gets the legs. Um, and if, again, thinking back to the big pattern that we've been seeing, um, the big pattern of sin and punishment <clears throat> in hell so far, if we think about this 
to begin with as a, a way of thinking through the perpetuation of his sin or the like recapitulation, um, the kind of outward expression of the sin uh, to sort of explain what it is. If that's what's happening here, we're starting with the belly. And that makes sense to me. The belly is the seat of appetite. Um, desires, baser desires, right? Even sexual desire is kind of generally associated with the belly and loins, right? So all kinds of base fleshly desires are associated with the belly. So it makes this is where it begins, right? Like first it grips him by the belly. Your desires put you, and then what happens? Then you then you do stuff, right? Then it goes to your arms. Um, you start doing things in order to satisfy that. And then the legs last, uh, which I would read allegorically as something like um, it then taking control over what you do, right? Over not just what, like the actions you perform, but like where you go, like where you guide um, your life, like how you steer your life, basically, like how you walk, like the path you walk down essentially. Um, and then, uh, then the tail, which Arthur, you know, you don't have to be Freud, uh, to, uh, find that tail, like when he sticks his tail between the legs of the dude and then straightens it again behind his loins. I mean, Okay, I'm tracking there, right? So, but it's interesting to me that comes last. I don't know. Um, sometimes a snake is only a snake, Arthur. It's possible, right? But, I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Interesting that it's reversed, though, isn't it? I mean, it's like the tail of the serpent becomes this, like, enormous reversed penis sticking out the back. I, I, I don't know. Um, is the reversal important? It could be. Um, certainly, appetite being the thing that is driving you, um, that's exactly backwards. It's precisely the opposite of how it should be. Um, reason should be driving and appetite should be serving. And this, of course, um, this, of course, is one of the conse primary consequences of the fall. Um, this is what like original sin looks like um, in, you know, some of the dominant throughout the Middle Ages, dominant ways of thinking about original sin is that unfallen man has the, you know, the seat of reason. Reason is in charge. Uh, you've got reason, will, and appetite, right? You've got reason, which is guiding the will, and will, which is steering the appetite, and, you know, and the appetite is in perfect regulation uh, by the will under the instruction of the reason. That's how it's supposed to be. And then the fall happens and it gets flipped upside down and you've got appetite driving the bus now. And so your appetite is compelling your will and then your will is leaving reason in the dust. Um, so that is, um, uh, that is, the, 
so I, I, I kind of like, you know, appetite reversal. Um, I could see that. I could see that working. Ultimately, I think it's going to, I think it's going up his back, isn't it? Eventually straightening it again behind his loins, I think means that the, like the tail of the serpent is going up his spine, I think. And I'm going to hope it's doing that externally <laughs> and not in any other more hideously uncomfortable fashion. Um, uh, and of course it's like Ivy against a tree and we're, we're going to see of course the next stage of this um, intertwining the other's limbs with its. Um, so this would seem to be, again, if I'm understanding this properly, this would seem to be a kind of um, physical illustration of what this, of again, of like of what his sin was, of how his sin functioned, right? And if it's theft, I think that we can see. Like it's it's interesting because notice how let's let's, let's operate under the assumption for now that it's theft. <laughs> notice how I'm like, let's just assume I'm right. <laughs> But anyway, if it's theft, the interesting thing about that um, is that it's internalizing it. It's not about the stuff. It's not even about the victim of the theft, right? Because that's Circle 7 stuff, right? Violence against others. Theft is included in violence against others. So people who just rob folks, like, you know, highwaymen and stuff like that... Um, we're told they get, you know, up in, up in the rear of fire. Um, here, the punishment is internalized. It's like, it's about them. It's about, it's less about the harm that their theft does to other people, which is again, what the emphasis is in the seventh circle, right? The violent, violent against others, Right. Look at the harm you did to people, hurting their stuff, hurting their bodies, um, even hurting them politically. Like remember the dictators and usurpers were there too. Um, this isn't about the focus. Isn't on, I should say, the harm they're doing to other people. It's like dramatizing what they're doing to themselves. Um, Tony wants to know if the biting of the face is an attack on reason. Something like, I mean, the, the, the brain is the seed of reason, and he's not like eating his brain, he's eating his face. His teeth are in his cheeks, you know, not in his temples. But still, um, he can't, and it's, uh, no, that happens right out between the arms and the thighs. Belly, arms, face, thighs. So again, I, Tony, I associate it with with like his body. I get like appetite, actions, words, like life plan, right? And then what? If we do associate it, the tail with the penis, does that mean like progeny? Are we thinking of, instead of thinking about appetite because we already got took care of appetite with the belly? Um, are we thinking about offspring, right? Like your future, basically. Um, you know, at first it's, you know, it seizes you in your appetite. 
then it takes over your action. It dominates your actions. If you like, it keeps going, it dominates your actions. Then your words. Then the way you steer the whole rest of your life, and then all of your progeny and your future as well. That could work. That could work. Saint Augustine could do better, but um, uh, but that that's that could work. Let's 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 carry on here. Then just as if their substance were warm wax, they stuck together, and they mixed their colors, so neither seemed what he had been before. Just as, when papers kindled, where it still has not caught flame in full, its colors dark, though not yet black, while white is dying off. The other two souls stared, and each one cried, Ah, me, Agnello, how you change! Just see, you are already neither two nor one! Then two heads were already joined in one, when in one face, where two had been dissolved, two intermingling shapes appeared to us. Two arms came into being from four lengths. The thighs and legs, the belly and the chest became such limbs as had never been seen, and every former shape was cancelled there. That perverse image seemed to share in both and none, and so, and slowly, it moved on. So first we have the attachment of the serpent. The serpent attaches onto him, and it is initially like an external thing seizing him, right? So you still have the him underneath it, right? Um, you st- he's still the person. He's got issues, right? He's got problems. He's got this massive serpent stuck to his face and body and everywhere, right? Um, then... Step two is it merges, it merges into him, right? But it doesn't vanish into him and he doesn't turn into it. The two of them mold together and become a monstrosity. Neither two nor one. Um, Every former shape was canceled there. That perverse image seemed to share in both and none. And so... And slowly, it moved on. And off he goes, staggering off. Now, the serpent dude. Um, This guy is one of my favorites. I love this guy. That is, this... Especially as we're working it out... I love how this seems to serve for me, not only allegorically to represent this particular sin, which if it's theft, uh, that's where I struggle. Where I struggle is being like, so is it theft specific? I mean, it kind of is, right? Again, it starts with the belly, but seriously, that allegory I just mapped out for the serpent attaching to him. That could work for a whole lot of sins. Like something like most of them, actually. Right? Um, You know, Gerald, I think it might well be so. Gerald is saying, it sounds like the snakes are also sinners, merging and maybe eventually stealing each other's shapes. Yeah. I mean, given what we see elsewhere, 
there's no reason, I don't think there's any reason to think that the transformations that Dante witnesses, he describes three, right? We'll get three detailed descriptions of transformations. The first one we did last week, which was the Phoenix one, right? The collapsing into ash and coming back one. Um, this one, the two into one, but not one, the two into zero, right, that we get. Um, and then the third one, which is coming up. Um, but I have no reason to think that those are the only transformations. That, you know, like, you know, every single transformation going on everywhere is one of these three things, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, Arthur's pointing out that Agnello, of course, is a, an Italian surname literally meaning lamb. Uh, well, a couple ways we could go with that. Here's how, here's where I'd go with that, Arthur. All right. Let's work with it. Let's work with it. Agnello. Lamb. What do we associate with lamb? That's easy. Jesus. Okay, fine. The Lamb of God. What do we see in this guy? What's he called at the end? A perverse image that seemed to share in both. Image. Right? A perverse image. What has happened to this guy is he has lost his shape. He has lost his image. And that's a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Why is this a big deal? A human being whose image is distorted into a perverse and unrecognizable image. This is important because, Jennifer, exactly humans are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, right? Humans are made in the image of God. All humans are the image of God. So if he is, a, is made, he's no longer the image of God. He's now this perverse, sickening, repulsive, snake person thing, right? Who has lost the image. That, that would seem to be the consequence, right? So, Agnello, right? Lamb. Um, uh, connecting him with, you know, sort of pointing to the connection between him and Jesus, right? That Jesus being the substitutionary sacrifice for man, that's why he's the lamb of God. He's the lamb of the sacrificial lamb of God, the substitutionary sacrifice, um, he, Agnello, right, the sinner dude, by dint of the fact that he's in hell, we can conclude um, that he has rejected that. He has, he has twisted. So we're recalling the twisted image of God that he has become and that his name connects him with one of the titles of Jesus seems to me to kind of piggyback, 
gosh, that's an awkward image to use of this guy, um, on the image thing at the end, right? Um, connection to God's image, back to Genesis, connection uh, to Jesus's substitution, um, and the, uh, like, he's supposed, he's supposed to be, um, as a member of the Christian church, uh, one flesh with Jesus as well. Um, and that again has all been, uh, been, been twisted. Um, Michael, I totally agree with you. Michael uh, says, you could argue that most of the sinners in Inferno have lost the image of God. How is this more so? Don't know. Uh, again, that's why one of the reasons why I like the, why I'm really interested in this guy is this seems to me like a really fun kind of standalone allegory, right? Standalone allegory for um, like sin, broadly speaking, um, or at least or especially maybe fleshly sin, but except, wait, this guy isn't fleshly sin. He's in the eighth circle, not in the third circle or the fourth circle or the second circle. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, again, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what this has to do with theft exactly. Now we can see like that these people, if they're all guilty of theft in some sense or other, um, they have stolen from others. They have sought to uh, to take, to have, to profit from something that they did not, you know, that was not theirs, something that belonged to another. And so their own, their very bodies, their own images are being stolen from them and messed with. They're like, they're losing like the proprietary rights even to their own persons, right? Um, and I can I can see that. I can get that. Um, I, the association with theft there. Okay. Okay. Though again, that feels to me like I've gone from saying this is a metaphor for sin largely taken to now this is a metaphor for fraud because everybody who is guilty of fraud is guilty of doing that, right? Of like acquiring something that did not belong to you, you know, by fraudulent means. That's kind of what everyone is supposed to be doing um, down here. I mean, not what they're supposed to be doing, but what the, um, uh, what the folks being punished down here are doing. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, there's one other passage later on that gives me one way to connect these sinners and what's happening to them. And more importantly, the description of what's happening to them and to associate that with theft. But, um, but we'll get there. We're not there yet. Let's keep going. Second guy, <clears throat> also known as the third guy. Second guy in this set of three. Um, third guy whose transformation we've read about. 
Just as the lizard, when it darts from hedge to hedge, beneath the dog day's giant lash, seems, if it crosses one's path, a lightning flash, so seemed a blazing little serpent moving against the bellies of the other two, as black and livid as a peppercorn. Attacking one of them, it pierced right through, and part, pierced right through the part where we first take our nourishment, and then it fell before him at full length. Wait a second. Hang on. I'm having a, I'm having, I'm having a, an issue. I forgot to talk about the simile, the paper burning simile, which is really cool. The paper burning simile. So on the one hand, what it's like is it's like the transition, right? A piece of paper is on fire and you've got the unburned paper over here and you've got the black ash over here and you've got the transitional zone where the fire is just spreading, where the flame has not caught in full, its colors dark, though not yet black. So the place where the paper is just turning brown and starting to burn, but is not yet actually fully on fire and not yet turned black. And what's that like? What's like that exactly? What's like that is the transition. Them, they stuck together and they mixed their colors so neither seemed what he had been before just as when papers kindled. So I think that means the whole body of this person is like that borderline on the burned paper. He becomes neither paper nor ash. He becomes this, the zone where the fire is actually consuming. Um, and it is a very fleeting moment, Michael, isn't it? I mean, it's a fascinating simile because, I mean, one of the things that I, it's hard for me not to kind of extend that simile to some extent, like he's describing the process of the two merging and I can't help but picture the merging kind of spreading through his body like flame spreads across a sheet of paper, right? Um, I can't help kind of extending it in that way, but that's not actually what he's describing. It's, it's that, it's that zone and Michael fleeting is exactly right, right? Like his whole, it seems like one of the things he's trying to capture is neither, like it's both and yet none. He's neither, it's not the man anymore, and it's not the serpent anymore, and it's not man plus serpent, it's something else. It's like that zone. And, and Michael, as you point out, that zone is very nearly nothing because it goes so quickly. There's a tiny, tiny moment in a tiny, tiny thread right around the, the, the flame um, which fits that description, right? So it seems to me to convey that he becomes nothing. Yeah, Tony, he's like, it's an eternal instant. It's the liminal place, yes. And he's permanently transformed, or as far as we can see permanently, permanently transformed, or at least he's stably transformed. He doesn't just poof back again like Phoenix dude. 
um, he um, he is stably transformed into a permanent transition, right? But he's still as like ephemeral, as much nearly nothing as that transitional liminal zone is itself. Like he becomes a boundary. Like the boundaries between himself and the serpent go away and his whole person now becomes a boundary, right? An invisible line. Um, sorry, meant to talk about that. Realized I forgot to talk about that. Let me go back. Okay. So help me, let's make sure we're getting the, okay, first we're going to start at the, at the literal level. I always do, right? Just as the wizard, when it darts from hedge to hedge, so going across a path that's between hedges, beneath the dog day's giant lash, so it's very hot, so cold-blooded reptiles can move really fast, seems if it cross one's path a lightning flash. So seemed a blazing little serpent moving against the bellies of the other two, as black and livid as a peppercorn. Okay. Fast-moving, blazing little serpent, black and livid as a peppercorn. I don't understand how something is as livid as a peppercorn. I don't, I don't understand what that means. But it's very black, but it's also apparently blazing, and it's moving against their bellies. <laughs> Arthur says he does not want to shop wherever Dante got his peppercorns. Um, yeah. Yeah, Gerald, I'm thinking it's got something to do with blackness. That's my theory, anyway. Black and livid as a peppercorn, right? So the two adjectives describing peppercorn. A quality of the blackness of the peppercorn, I guess. Um, uh, yeah. Um... Yeah, so livid as Carita and um, Stephen are pointing to can mean gray, um, like livid bruises, Carita, yes. Um, but it. How's it black and livid then? Which is it? Is it gray or is it black? Or it can mean pale. But I think pale in this, like gray, right? Like if your face turns livid, it means like you get ashen-faced, right? Like you go so pale, your face looks gray. I think that's still a grayness thing. At least that's my understanding of it. Um, creator thinks it's funnier if the peppercorn is angry, which is one of the other uh, uses of livid. Um, a spicy little peppercorn. <laughs> well, he's blazing, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's fiery. 
he is fiery, right? Uh, this uh, little serpent is certainly, you know, caliente, right? Uh, so maybe it's fiery in more than one sense. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Now, Jocelyn's telling me about actual peppercorns. See, I know nothing about peppercorns. Jocelyn's telling me that black peppercorns are actually cooked green peppercorns, and there are also brilliant red ones. A red peppercorn... A red peppercorn would make sense if it were a blazing peppercorn. Blazing serpent like a red peppercorn, but then why does he say it's black and livid? I don't know. I don't know. Um, interesting. So the Musa translation, Aaron Rourke is saying, Aaron Rourke is saying, uh, the Musa translation gives fiery with rage and black as peppercorn. Um... Okay. That seems a little intrusive. Uh, fiery with rage and black as peppercorn. But that's not what it says. I think black and livid are both adjectives that are being applied to the peppercorn. Whatever. Okay. Maybe I should stop obsessing about the peppercorns. Anyway, it's some kind of striking color. Maybe it's black. Maybe it's gray. Maybe it's red. Maybe it's party-colored. Who knows? It, perhaps Dante did have party-colored peppercorns, Tarlonio. Very possible. Um, uh, <laughs> Carita says that I think peppercorn is a really cute word, which is throwing me off from how upsetting this serpent is supposed to be. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Ah, Stephen is suggesting perhaps, um, uh, Stephen is suggesting that perhaps it's livid as a peppercorn, so the peppercorns are gray, but it's also black, so it's, the snake is two-colored. It is both black, parts of it are black and parts of it are peppercorn-colored. Maybe. I don't know. But I think I'm going to stop worrying about it and move on because I have further questions. Attacking one of them, it pierced right through the part where we first take our nourishment. Belly button. Tracking with you there, Dante. It pierces through his belly button. So it enters his belly button. So the blazing serpent, which boom, darts out like lightning, hits him in the belly button. So head of serpent colliding with belly button of dude. Right? Is what I'm picturing. But then, and then it fell before him at full length. So not, it's not coming out the back. It falls before him at full length. So is it coming through from behind? 
Is it hitting him in the lumbar region and emerging from his belly button? It pierced right through the part where we take our nourishment. Could describe the exit wound of the blazing serpent, I suppose. And if it's falling at full length before him, that would seem to be indicated. Right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure umbilicus, not breast. Yes. Yeah. Um, first nourishment would be umbilicus. Um, pretty sure. Pretty sure. Um, okay. Um, all right. Um, Michael, exactly. It's moving against the bellies of the other two, which makes it seem like a frontal entry to me. Yeah. Now, Arthur's saying, um, oh, yeah, the breast would take it, would, would need a significant upward angle of the snake. Yeah, yeah, no, it would. It would. Um, it would have to do a significant, bizarre ricochet. But yeah, so it's moving against the bellies of the other two, not the one that it's attacking. Right? So maybe it moves against their bellies and hits him. I don't know. Is it hitting him in the side? Does he have his back to them? So it goes against their bellies and then hits him in the small of the back and emerges from the belly button? Or is it like entering in through his like kidney and care and care through his liver or something and then coming out the belly button? Is it, you know, taking a taking a turn? Um uh, Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer wants a reenactment at Mythmoot. I doubt we'll do this one, Jennifer. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. Uh, it could, it's a snake hernia, Arthur. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, Stephen, you're right. You're right. Stephen says the other two has to be the two. So we had three dudes to start with. One of them is already no longer a dude. He's now snake monster thing, serpent. He's the conglomerate dude who certainly does not have a belly anymore because he has a big old serpent where his belly used to be. Uh, and he's now like staggered off and left, you know, going his like monstrous way down the path. Um, uh, no longer human and no longer serpent. So I agree. His belly is out of play. So there's now two dudes left. So the serpent is moving against the bellies of both of the two remaining dudes. And it's only attacking one of them. So I, this can't be a rear entry. It can't be stabbing him in the back and coming out his belly button. Maybe Michael was suggesting... Um, Michael was suggesting... Uh, if it's just a little serpent, it could be a quick in and out job from the navel. Yeah, it could. It could. So it's going against the belly, bypasses the navel of one for reasons best known to itself, and strikes into the belly button of the other. So we don't have full 
serpentine transfiction of the guy. Just a little nip, right? Just a little stab. Though it uses the word transfixed. That's why I was picturing, well, transfiction, right? I was like, I was picturing the snake going all the way through his body because it's transfixed. Maybe he's only transfixed a little bit. Can you get transfixed a little bit? No, I don't want to do a reenactment. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Um, if the snake just pokes its head in to the navel and transfixes him a little bit, right? And drops to the ground. Then it fell before him at full length. Okay. I don't think I've solved the problem here. I still don't know that I can really picture this. Do you see, though, why I'm doing this? Dante really seems to want us to picture these, and we're given so much detail, and yet I'm having a time. Okay, anyway, all right. Then the one it had transfixed stared but said nothing. In fact, he only stood his ground and yawned as one whom sleep or fever has undone. The serpent, serpent stared at him, he at the serpent. One through his wound, the other through his mouth, were smoking violently. Their smoke met. Serpent on the ground. Dude with belly button wound of indeterminate depth. The guy is yawning? Reaction to being transfixed in the belly button, a yawn. Right? So he yawns. The serpent stares at him, and he stares at the serpent. And then smoke starts emerging violently. Violent smoke bursting out, one through his wound, the other through his mouth. So smoke is coming out of the mouth of the snake and out of the belly button of the guy. <laughs> He's only mostly transfixed. Um, exactly. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, exactly, Jocelyn. There's no way it can have gone in his belly button and out the other side. It can't be have completely transfixed him because then it wouldn't fall in front of him. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and yes, Tony, it absolutely looks like a perversion of the umbilical cord, doesn't it? Right? Notice the image that we have here. The image that we have here is of a smoky umbilical cord attaching this guy from his navel to the mouth of the serpent that just bit him. Right? Um, the part where we first take our nourishment. Recalling his, not just infancy, right? His... Um, in utero time. Oh, 
Sorry. I just had a horrible thought. That is, it's like being born again. Entering into the mother's womb a second time and being born again, right? Except being born a second... And now, again, for those of you, let me not make assumptions, even though that's a fairly easy Bible quiz for anybody with even a cursory reading of the New Testament or anybody who's been to a Christian church even once or twice. Um, that's from John chapter 3, um, uh, Jesus' famous conversation with Nicodemus, the one that contains the super famous verse that gets held up on placards at football games. Um, uh, they're talking about being born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Um, you were born of flesh, you need to be born of the spirit. But Nicodemus asks him with a certain degree of snark, I, I think, confusion tinged with snark at the very least. He says, what, am I supposed to crawl into my mother's womb and be born a second time? That doesn't even make any sense. Um, and yeah, but Carrie, we have this inverted pre-birth situation like he is in his mother's womb a second time except instead of being um, connected for his own nourishment to a source of nourishment the umbilical cord is connecting him to the serpent's mouth like the serpent is eating him like the serpent is drawing him you know the smoke that explodes out of his navel is merging with the snake with the smoke, smoke that's emerging out of the snake's mouth, leading the cord that connects straight from the navel to the snake. Anyway, the image seems to me to suggest that this guy is making a deposit, not a withdrawal, right? Um, uh, in the, like, you know, he's not receiving nourishment. He's losing something, not gaining something. Um yeah, I agree. Uh, Nadia on Facebook says that's so interesting and so horrible. <laughs> yes, it really is, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, and with the serpent and the mouth of the serpent connected with Satan and sin, if the serpent is here a representative in some sense of his um, uh, of his sin. Right, that the sin is drawing the life out of him, like an inversion of the original nourishment of his wife, of his life in his mother's womb. Um, why is he yawning? First, I thought the snake was yawning because the snake's mouth is open because the smoke is coming out. I don't understand why he's yawning as one whom sleep or fever has undone. Sleep or fever. Losing consciousness. Losing awareness, control, like when you are in either of those states, fever or sleep. Um, your, remember, reason, will, appetite, right? Um, reason and will are going away, right? Both in sleep and in fever. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. He's yawning, as Stephen says, because he's bored. Yes, the snake is 
board. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Let's keep going. Hang on a second. Wait. I'm going to look at line numbers. Yep. Okay. Immediately after this, we pause for a message from your author. Let Lucan now be silent, where he sings of sad Sabellus and Nisidius, and wait to hear what flies off from my bow. Let Ovid now be silent, where he tells of Cadmus, Arethusa. If his verse has made of one a serpent, one a fountain, I do not envy him. He never did transmute two natures face to face, so that both forms were ready to exchange their matter. Boom! Take that, Ovid! <laughs> yeah, Arthur says, is Dante, isn't Dante worried about the circle of the braggarts? Um, yeah. 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 Ah, uh, yeah, Arthur. No, I figured you were you were in on the uh, on the on the him being bored um, uh, 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 thought as well. Um, let's come back to this. I even skipped some because I didn't want to do like the entire canto uh, line for line, but. And while the smoke veils each with a new color, and now breeds hair upon the skin of one, just as it strips the hair from off the other, the one rose up, the other fell, and yet they never turned aside their impious eye lamps, beneath which each of them transformed his snout. He who stood up drew his back toward the temples, and from the excess matter growing there came ears upon the cheeks that had been bare. Whatever had not been pulled back but kept superfluous, then made his face a nose, and thickened out his lips appropriately. He who was lying down thrust out his snout, and even as the snail hauls in its horns, he drew his ears straight back into his head. His tongue, which before had been whole and fit for speech, now cleaves the other's tongue, which had been forked, now closes up, and the smoke stops. What Dante pulls off here is this double transformation. The smoke connects them wound to mouth. Their eyes meet. And their eyes stay fixed on each other the whole time. As snake and man stare at each other, their bodies both change until one becomes the man and the other becomes the snake. And when their tongues change, the one tongue cleaving together, the other tongue cleaving apart... Um, the transformation is done and the smoke stops. Allegorically, right, Stephen says, this is what makes him think that the snakes are not merely demons or animals, but other sinners. Very possibly. Especially if they, the snakes are the agents of torment and of transformation, um, 
this is where we get the idea of them constantly stealing from each other, right? Stealing form, being, even. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to Snake Dude, who just went staggering off, right? Um, if that's two people who are now merged into one, you know, monstrous non-person, um, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know what's up with them. Are they going to later on separate? Um, maybe they're going to stagger around the corner and collapse into ash and then resume as two separate people. I don't know. I don't know. Um, change is one of the... And by the way, that's kind of... It's kind of new, isn't it? Have we seen change? Who else is changing? Things have been pretty static. Like, stuff moves around and stuff sometimes. But... Most of the sinners that we've seen in hell are kind of there for the long haul, right? I mean, whatever's happening to them is kind of happening to them. Sometimes the thing happening is a sort of a process, but, but it doesn't really move from a beginning to an end. Um, I mean, the image of a snake eating its own tail, right? The Ouroboros is, is kind of the metaphor for this entire uh, pouch, isn't it? But anyway... Um, Hmm. Hmm. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to think back of other examples of places where this people themselves were changing. Right, sinners get torn up but not completely transformed. Exactly. Um... Yeah, divorce says I like the idea. I, I get the idea, like the shapes of all of them are in constant flux forever. Yeah, it does seem that way, doesn't it? It does seem that way. Um, yeah. The identity. It's all about identity, right? Identity theft. This is obviously where the, the uh, people guilty of identity theft go. Um, but, okay. The snake, before we had the snake attaching itself to the man, and the snake, allegorically, in the allegorical reading I was doing, the snake was like, was the sin, right? Or like the sinful desire that first latches onto his belly, right? And then the rest of him. And then, merges into him and changes him and perverts the very image of God that is him, right? Um, which is a particularly abominable when we think about the way in which he was supposed to be connected with Jesus. Um, but here, so again, there in that allegory, the snake was the sin, right? That also looks like it could work here as well, right? The snake is like the sin that strikes him once again. It's striking at his belly, right? Um, another belly-oriented sin, um, but then it connects with him, like the other one connected with him, right? Um, except this time, it it's like identifies and transforms the two of them, right? So that the man becomes the sin, and the sin becomes the man. 
right? Um, suggesting this really deep identity between the two, like there was a very deep identity, monstrous identity, the two becoming one, right, with the other guy. I think that that kind of works. Um, what does that exactly have to do with theft? I don't know. Again, both of them seems, seem to be very applicable beyond this pouch. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Aaron, the suicide trees, I don't think... I would not say the suicide trees are the same thing. Well, because they're, they're stable. Like, they remain trees, right? Yeah, they're changed, but they're changed. I mean, they... They're seeds that planted, right? Minus throws them down, and, and they land here, and they grow as trees. Um, so there's a kind... I mean, the, but it's more like at their arrival, right? But then after that, they remain trees. They don't, they don't really change. Um, yeah, uh, no, hang on. We'll save 26. Um, or maybe not. We'll see. Well, let me go back to the one-upsmanship. In the middle, we get this interruption. Um, Stephen um, is pointing out that Lucan and Ovid, you know, invited Dante into their little clique up in limbo, right? And Dante repays them by, you know, one-upping them down here, right? Um, yes. Yes. There's some serious one-ups. Yes, there are scenes of transformation that Lucan describes, as Dante alludes to there. Um, and, of course, Cadmus turns into a serpent. Um... So he's describing something like what Ovid... He's kind of doing what Ovid did. Kind of... Well, it's not exactly plagiarism, right? It's not exactly literary theft. Um, but it's a little bit like it. He looks at Ovid, and of course, Ovid's major work is called The Metamorphosis. Right, the the metamorphoses, the translate. Uh, it's called metamorphoses, the trans, the transformation. Right, changing of forms. It's all about. It's the running theme all the way through Ovid's poem, is the changing, the description of the changing of forms. It's what Ovid is most famous for, right? And here's Dante, saying, that thing you're most famous for, Ovid. I can do better. I can do better. Yeah, Tony, this is very like Dante's diss track. That's, yeah, kind of exactly what this is. Um, what do we do with this? I don't know. Is Dante doing this, as I so often find myself asking, is he doing this self-consciously or unselfconsciously? Um, is he making a grab at Ovid's poetic reputation to try to displace Ovid 
and take that fame for himself in the, you know, pouch of the thieves, self-consciously or unselfconsciously. Um, is this him, just him spontaneously saying, this thing that I'm doing, pay attention, this is pretty cool, right? I'm even better than Lucan and Ovid, right? Two of the four big hitters of the, of the classical world. Um, you know, and maybe he just believes it. Maybe he's just, you know, it's not, it's not bragging if it's true, right? Um, is that his attitude here? Or is the flagrant attention that he's drawing here meant to, again, as we've seen before, suggest a gap between Dante the poet and Dante the pilgrim, right? Dante the speaker, Dante the poet and Dante the speaker, right? Dante the narrator, the first person account um, of this. Um, right, Tony was just asking about that. Um, yeah, Jennifer says, well, he is citing his sources, so he can't be accused of theft. Yes, he is. No, it's not theft exactly. It's not theft exactly. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Again, I find myself asking the question, how uncomfortable am I supposed to feel here? Is Dante uncomfortable? Am I supposed to be uncomfortable? Am I just being uncomfortable for Dante's benefit because I would feel uncomfortable bragging as much as he is right now? Um... Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was joking about plagiarism. I shouldn't have made the plagiarism joke because I know that's just a confusion. Um, no, no, there's no concept of, of plagiarism. Uh, you can freely live. That's, it's, that's, it's reference. Like, that's, that's just, if you take somebody else's story and you retell their story, you take someone else's lines and you translate them into your own poem, that's not theft that's literature you know that's um uh that's depth of uh, that's that's adding literary depth to your work um there's no it's not it's not a plagiarism issue for sure um so yeah so i'm sorry i should i i should that was irresponsible of me shouldn't have made that joke um uh Yes, I should be scolded, just like I always feel like scolding C.S. Lewis when he made Narnia flat. Um, but um, anyway, um, does it help us understand the nature of this theft that it separates it from the circle of the violent? Of this theft that separates it from the circle of the violent. Hmm. See, I, okay, there are two things I think that we have to focus on in trying to understand the difference between the thieves who end up in the seventh circle and the thieves who end up here. The primary one 
is the fraud issue. All theft is not fraud. You can steal something from somebody, right? Like a purse snatcher is not guilty of fraud. Theft? Yes. Fraud? A burglar? Well... I mean, somebody who just kicks down your door, takes your things, and runs off is not guilty of fraud. A highwayman, right? Somebody who just, like, holds up your carriage, sticks a gun in the door, and says, you know, stand and deliver, is not guilty of fraud, right? Theft, yes. Fraud, no. Um, uh, so... There's certainly a distinction there between people who end up here and people who end up in the seventh circle. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's true. I suppose, Tony, if the burglar is sufficiently honest, they could end up in the seventh circle instead. Right. Yes, yes. Um But if you are sneaky, right, if you're committing fraud, which, remember, is not betrayal. Uh, the thing that separates the Eighth Circle from the Ninth Circle is that the Eighth Circle is full of people who defraud strangers, right? So if you are a con man, yes, somebody was, I forget who it was, David maybe, um, was mentioning con men earlier on. A con man would definitely be here. Right. Um, if you are deceiving somebody into, and certainly, yes, identity theft, absolutely. Yes. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Bruce, yeah, the guy who robbed the sacristy was so subtle that someone else got blamed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He didn't just break in, steal stuff, and run off. Right. Um, uh, yeah, Michael, I think if you, people who, like, get access to their grandma's bank accounts and embezzle them for their own purposes are not here. Right, those people go to the special hell. <laughs> right, there's the ninth circle for them. Right, um, if you're defrauding Granny, you go to the ninth circle. If you're defrauding a guy on the street, you go to the eighth circle. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and so this would seem thinking through fraudulent theft and what what defines fraudulent theft helps perhaps to understand the focus on identity on personhood right um you're lying you're pretending to be someone else um so you've got the serpent connection the serpent's mouth connection, right? Lots of serpent. Mouth-to-mouth -mouth serpent. We got the mouth-to-mouth -mouth serpent. We got the mouth-to-navel serpent. Um, uh, 
Um, so that kind of deception. Um, but you're also dressing yourself up, <clears throat> right? You're also deceiving, making people think you're something you're not um, in order to achieve... Um, in order to achieve something like this. So yes, yes, Tony, this would be uh, where the people who send all of those emails uh, uh, purporting to be from Nigerian princes would go. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's just it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, So why the poetic one-upsmanship? Is it self-conscious or unself-conscious? Maybe it's unself-conscious. Maybe it just got carried away. Hey, this goes out to you, Lucan. This goes out to you, Ovid. Check this out. Get a load of this. This is awesome. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, see, I don't think he's defrauding Luke and Aravid exactly. I don't think he's defrauding them. I don't know. Keep this one in mind, like the other one, like the the hoarfrost on the farm simile we were looking at last week. I want to be kind of. I want to come back to this when we get closer to the end of the of the whole poem and see where we're thinking about Dante's putting some of these things together, um, trying to draw some conclusions about Dante's level of self-consciousness and the extent to which um, Dante is sort of undermining, uh, uh, undermining himself. All right, let's... It's late, but we started late. Should we start the next canto or what? No, because the next canto, it's all, it's real complicated. It's one long big thing about the fires. Yeah, all right. All right, we'll wait. We'll come back to this next time. All right, so we'll do the flames of canto 26 in which we meet a major celebrity, right? We'll do that next time. Um, major celebrity, one of the biggest celebrities we meet uh, in uh, uh, in all of Inferno. I mean, there are major Bible celebrities, right? He's not the biggest, but this, this is a pretty this is a pretty marquee dude uh, that we meet in twenty six. We'll meet Ulysses, which is exciting. If you were hoping to meet Odysseus, I have bad news for you. You're not going to meet Odysseus, but Ulysses, we can do. Are they the same dude? No, not really, not really. Um, but, um, uh, more next time. So we'll get back to, we'll get back to Ulysses next time. Thanks everybody for joining me. Sorry I was so late. I'll try to do better next time, (laughs) but, uh, renovation's going to be going on, uh, for the next few weeks. So we'll see what happens, but I'm, I'm open for the best. Thanks everybody. Have a good night and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.